We believe to ride and run is freedom and empowerment. We believe riding and running solves problems and makes people happy. We even believe that if more people were physically active, the world would be a better place. We believe in physical activity because it is our passion. This is the Big Peach Ride and Run Podcast with your host, Mike Cosentino. From the capital of the South, this is the Big Peach Run and Ride Podcast. My name is Mike Cosentino. Good evening. What a spectacular pleasure it is to be with you. I am not alone once again. You can always count on this good news. Here it is in person. Dolomite Dave Martinez, D2. Once again, here we are, video and audio. How are you? I'm doing good. I'm doing great. I, uh, you know, actually I was looking at, I think I forgot to set the open to live. And, uh, so you may not have heard it. That's probably why you were just hanging out there and I'm like, all right, why are you waiting? You know, I was like, I forgot to set that to live. It was set in preview mode. So I forgot. And I haven't even started drinking yet, but I do have a nice frosty, you know, uh, beverage here. I'm, uh, drinking Three Taverns Morning Smack. I know it's one of your favorites. Oh, my goodness, dude. Well done. That's a great choice. I was wondering if that was perhaps why I didn't see that awesome bed that kind of leads us in. But if you're drinking Morning Smack, I don't care what mistakes might get made this evening. You have good reason for that. That's very, very cool. Another thing that's super cool is our guest this evening. And of course, thanks to everyone for joining us. This is going to be worth your time. You see in between D2 and I on the screen, Tom Carlio, a good friend of Big Peach and an even better friend of the running industry for a long time. He has almost 35 years in this industry across a variety of brands. And for those of you who like to geek out about footwear or perhaps are just kind of curious what is going on in and around performance running footwear we have the special guest for you tom man it is awesome to see you it's been too long since we've been able to lay eyes on each other but it has not been for me not thinking about you so i hope all is well and thanks for doing this yeah thank you thanks guys appreciate being here and uh mutual it's been way too long man it has indeed. And, and we're going to jump right in. I told you at the onset, I'm going to tell everybody else now, for those of you who have tuned in and are watching this on Facebook Live, you're going to get a chance, should you choose to ask Tom a question or make a comment, just go ahead and do so through Facebook. And we'll try to bring that into this conversation real time. For those of you who are picking this up as part of our podcast, thank you for listening on the backside. Obviously, the Facebook links will not work. You might not see some of the video, but man, you'll get a lot of this just by listening in. I told Tom, we're going to take a little bit of a trip around the bases. We're going to start with what I call the journey, but we're also going to go on a hunt. We're going to talk a little bit about what might be known as the future, and then we'll bring it in for the landing. But Tom, the journey, I gave you advanced notice. I think there'd be a lot of people who would say, man, that is a really cool journey. So once again, we're talking to Tom, who is vice president, running and footwear innovation. For those who might think, man, there are a lot of cool jobs in the running industry. Maybe you're thinking about sales and marketing. You're thinking about consumer experience, human resources, and organizational development. I bet there are very few who would choose anything but being running and footwear division if they could choose anything. Tom, how do you at some point decide this is what you want to do and now do it for 30 plus year? Your hands, your mind, everything that you pour your heart and soul into around running footwear. Where is the origin story? Yeah, I mean, there's no question that the beginning of the story, much of it was 
by happenstance. It was somewhat accidental. I was a, um, a late comer to the track and field world. I began running when I was a junior in high school and I was a decent high school runner relatively quickly. Um, and then I went to, um, I ran division one for a few years at UMass Amherst and, um, needed a break from that life and moved back to Boston where I'm from just outside of Boston in the city of Newton and ended up um, transferring the few credits that I had from UMass Amherst over to Boston <laughs> college where I ran and had some success, um, at, at that stage running at DC. Um, but really my running career kind of happened a bit after that. Um, and it happened uh, in the club system that Nike had put into play in the late 80s. So right around 1987, I began um, running for the Nike Boston Club, which at the time was really a, a group of good runners from the Boston area, but also people that had relocated to the area um, to be coached um, under the watchful and experienced eye of Bob Seventy, who was sort of a legend back in the day. And I was lucky enough to run with him. And he got me um, focused a bit and got me fit probably for the first time in my life. And I was able to go to U.S. Nationals and Olympic trials in 88 in the 1500 meters. The reason that is relevant to your question, um, obviously, my, my passion for running just continued to blossom during that time. And I got way into the spikes. I was a spike geek. I was mm. altering, altering my own spikes. I was figuring out different lengths. I was creating my own kind of race day orthotics and just doing some strange things um, to try to get sort of the perfect fit. So I had this, this passion for that piece of the footwear. Back then when you're young, um, I felt I could train in, in anything. So I, um, you know, it was, it was the training shoes weren't my driving passion in the beginning. It was really the, the spikes and the, and the uh, road racing shoes. Um, Nike had a store in the town of Wellesley, right around the 15 mile mark of the Boston Marathon, which was one of the original Nike retail locations. And it was about 95% of the customer base and the assortment in the store was all running. It was, it was really a run specialty account. Mm. And I was lucky enough to get some hours in that store and relatively soon my, my passion for running um, and, and competing and racing really ebbed over to my passion for just that experience of, of working and ultimately managing a run specialty store and just understanding how to, how to hopefully make people's lives better by putting them in the right product, um, getting as good as you could get at sort of telling the stories of each product and understanding the nuances and the differences. And for me at that stage, the, the floodgates just opened my interest in, in the entire running industry um, expanded to, to a level that um, opened up doors for me. And, um, and after um, several years working in that store, I was offered the role to be the, what used to be called the Eakin, which yep. was the Nike tech rep in the Boston area. So I had Massachusetts and Rhode Island um, and had a blast in that job. And back then 90% of the job was getting into the stores and trying to evangelize the product that we had going at the time, um, executing grassroots events in the area, getting super involved with local road racers, local heroes, and um, really understanding how to connect those dots of the things that are happening externally to a retail store that are so meaningful to what happens inside the retail store, keeping the community 
healthy and fit and motivated through events. And as I said, through what local heroes can kind of do for you. Um, and I got a call one day asking me if I'd moved to Beaverton, um, Oregon to work in an event in the, really the sports marketing side. But my first role um, in really a corporate setting is I was, I was responsible for um, the road racing business at Nike. So I was responsible for the sponsorships and the execution of road races around the world. Um, ironically, I believe I started in March of 92 or 93. I get mixed up. Um, but one of my first trips was actually to Atlanta for a big meeting with Atlanta Track Club and Julia Emmons. And I was yes. incredibly, incredibly intimidated and um, ultimately, um, you know, worked with them on the the elusive T-shirt and um, having to change expo halls at the last minute. And I remember remember those days uh, dearly and it was great. I think I went to probably three in a row and um, got to experience what the running community of Atlanta was all about at the time. So, um, so that role, that role led me um, ultimately into a role in footwear where I always wanted to be. My dream job to this day was that job. I was the track and field product line manager. Um, I was being paid just enough to cover my rent and cheap gear, um, but it was still probably the best job I ever had. And from that, that portfolio of product that I worked on expanded into other types of models, training shoes, and all types of, um, you know, all types of um, footwear within the running category. I worked with some of the best people in the industry at that time and had an absolute blast. The culmination of that work actually happened also in your great city of Atlanta, where I was responsible for the spikes on track at both the Olympic trials and the Olympic games in 96. So I spent those, that summer pretty much in Atlanta. Um, and I still cherish the, the product that we worked on. And I still am lucky enough to have original pairs of the gold shoes and the purple shoes in my home here. And, uh, left me some of the, some of the coolest memories, um, you know, that I had had a, clearly up to that point. Um, Mike, you tell me if you need me to slow down here. So, let, well, I've got a couple of things I got, I got to ask you. First of all, I love the fact that you mentioned, you know, starting for those who think, man, how do you end up with such a big job? Go back and listen with Tom's story includes doing something like what a tech rep does. I'm sure you hung plenty of banners. You worked with lots of people to help them determine what shoe might fit best. You talked to all kinds of people who were never going to make the Olympic trials and just encouraging them to stick with it, to go out there and get one more mile tomorrow than what maybe they did today. You worked in what was effectively a run specialty store. So your beginning is not that much different perhaps than people who are working at Big Peach right now or people who people are listening to this have encountered at one of our stores at a group run. And then you talk about going out to Nike. You've got that dream job. And one of the things I know, Tom, from your past working on the Bowerman series, I think that was part of what sprouted from your work in that dream job, working on spikes, working on the 1996 Olympic Games, perhaps picking up experience from Atlanta Track Club around the Peachtree Road Race. The Bowerman series was kind of Big Peach's first exposure to how serious Nike could get when it wanted to be really, really serious about serving the runner, which was how they framed up what they were doing. Go back, if you would, for us as part of this journey to having both the responsibility and the opportunity to take the namesake of one of the founders 
and now create not just a shoe or two, but truly a collection and a mindset around the development of these types of shoes that deserve Bill Bowerman's name being on it as it is marketed. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a good um, transition question, Mike. You know, I, I, um, I was really lucky post that those Olympic games, two big things happened in my life. One, um, I married my, my girlfriend of um, several years at the time. And Atta in that boy. window of time, I, I let her know that we were going to be moving to Tokyo, Japan. Um, Nike moved us over and I spent about two and a half years as the running category manager for the, the Japanese market for Nike. And I learned so much at that time. Um, I, I look back on those days. It's just um, I didn't know what I was doing day one and probably didn't know a lot more even at day 100. But slowly, <laughs> slowly, I was able to absorb um, absorb the, um, the, the, the most critical things to being outside of a home office and to be away from um, the hub, particularly in a in a uh, in a country where English is not the spoken language, understanding the values of culture and history, particularly in the Japanese market, and understanding the need to put things together in a way that are really easy to understand um, is not something that's just important for people who are from different cultures or speak different languages, but even for people within um, the culture that we're from, making things easy to understand, making stories really, really, really rich. When I came back mm. after that assignment, I was the marketing manager for running for North America and worked very closely with the, the product team at the time. And the wheels had started to come off Nike running at that point. Um, we were selling lots of Air Maxes and shoes of that ilk, but shoe counts at road races um, within the run specialty channel, the market share had dropped um, dramatically. And we um, worked with a group of designers and a group of marketing people, and we created product that was more pure, that had longer life cycles, that were tested with runners. Kind of novel thought there, right? But um, actually, we <laughs> tested the product, um, and we all housed it underneath the, the, the Bowerman series. And um, it was a really fun project to work on. I was privileged prior to, prior to that. I'd been lucky enough to be one of the young people, which I once was, but to be one of the young people <laughs> that actually got to spend a lot of time with Mr. Bowerman and spent days in Eugene um, with him and, and his his um, assistant, a fellow named Mike Freeton. I, I spent days there just listening and learning from someone who's truly a legend. Um, and it was, a, it was a thrill, but it also inspired us to think about how can we in a very pure, very classy, way um, utilize what he contributed to running in a series of product that was meant just for just for that purpose so that's kind well, of where I, that where that came from well and i would assume that that you and, and mr bowerman were somewhat kindred spirits when i think about what you said in terms of you know tweaking the track spikes and, and maybe customizing them for your own use and then of course the story needs no retelling with the waffle iron and some of the things that he liked to do is that is that true i mean there are very few who really know personally know bill bowerman they only hear the stories was he a bit of a scientist just like it seems like you were in those early days and obviously as you continue forward yeah, I mean, I wouldn't put myself in the same hemisphere as as Mr. Bowerman, um, <laughs> but I, you know, I definitely um, had goosebumps every time I walked into his into his um, his lab in Eugene, 
and um, he was quite he was quite old at the time and um so you know it was he was someone you wanted to just absorb absorb every word every word he said and um and I was lucky enough to be able to spend some time with him to do that so ultimately you spent 15 years at, at Nike, and regardless of whether you consider yourself a runner or just an enthusiast in and around the world of sport, it's a brand that almost has, you know, no rival in terms of global recognition and perhaps even some reputation through its athletes, through its marketing, through its history, through its founders, through its product. If you look back at those 15 years, what are some of the lessons even to this day in your current role? that you find yourself going back to or maybe sharing with others on your team or perhaps coming into your organization at New Balance right now? Yeah, I mean, I, I, there, there were quite a few, I think. Um, I, I, I don't think necessarily everybody that's been at Nike or is at Nike was lucky enough to experience sort of the, the, um, the experiences I had. But I would say that the importance of team as cliche as that sounds, I can look at those 15 years when things were going not well mm. versus when things were going really well. And the common component was incredible teams, people that got each other's backs, understand their roles, took responsibility for what they were responsible for. And I, I learned that at Nike. Um, I was able to see how other people can make make your job so much easier if you know how to delegate and know how to communicate well. Um, and I learned the, the importance of just unleashing design, unleashing design to allow them to, to push things beyond the limits that may seem like what you've put in that season brief or that update to a model. So taking chances um, and um, keeping the athlete first and foremost are things that Again, during specific windows of time, were very real and alive when I was there. Um, but there were times where you know the brand was going in different directions, and um, so I can only tap into the times where I know that we were we were doing some pretty interesting and fun stuff. And I think back to those those lessons. Frankly, well, I when I started thinking about perhaps doing something different than Nike, it it came from a similar a similar um, thought process in that I started questioning whether what I was working on was good or not. I started really questioning what even we thought was good simply because the value of the brand and the value of the logo immediately gave you a head start. It gave you a head start getting it into customers like, like yourselves. Um, it gives you a head start from brand recognition with consumers um, and just the coolness effect and really wanted to challenge myself to see if some of the thoughts and ideas that I had or the teams I worked on had would could export and could work at brands that don't have that level of brand cachet. You almost built the perfect runway as to where I was going. And I, I love the fact that I jotted down taking chances that that was something that you were able to do and that maybe was part of, at least at the time, the brand ethos at Nike. And I don't know if that's at all how you considered then your transition over to Saucony. Certainly a more pure running brand if you look at the history and without all of what might be the other opportunities, or I would imagine at some point, maybe they were even distractions to running because of everything that was going on. I've said in my own history that there are certain periods in Nike's history that I believe their success in other parts of their business became their biggest challenge to remaining successful in that same season and running. 
So you go over to Saucony and you did some super cool things there. Things that for me as an entrepreneur were very entrepreneurially bold by taking what had been either tradition or just an expectation of let's keep doing it the same way. And you turned it on its ear and elected to do things a little bit differently. So now you're at Saucony. Was that taking a chance for you? And walk us through that half a decade you were there, because in my opinion, there was nothing sacred. You shook many things up. You found plenty of success. And now all of a sudden you've got some really cool stories to tell. But was that taking a chance when you made that transition? Yeah, there's no there's no question it was it was taking a chance. It was a, a bigger title at a much smaller place. Um, if I remember it correctly, Nike was making more salesman samples than Saucony was producing um, um, for the marketplace in a year. So it was a, wow. a pretty incredible shift when I when I got there. Interestingly, as pure as Saucony was, they had also taken their eye off the ball. You you may remember when there was the big boom with the um, with the, the 70s and 80s joggers out in the marketplace, as there as there is today, um, Saucony had an out of balance business with their Jazz Original and their Shadow. And um, like all brands, it's easy to sort of take your eye off the ball a little bit. And so when I came in, um, the, there was no question that we needed to shake some things up. And I, I won't and can't take credit for for um, much of what happened there, but uh, but coming in and trying to really think about how to be respectful to a team and respectful to a, uh, a company that had been around for many, many years in different, um, in di- different forms to be able to go in and, um, and be somewhat an agent of change. Um, some of the people that were there for many years prior to me being there were still friends to this day and just, you know, wonderful people. Um, I think the first thing that we had to do, though, was turn design on its head, as you said, um, and bring in some fresh, new design thinking. Um, mm. Everything from the details of how the logo was carried to, um, I remember saying to the former CEO, I said, I was always told not to throw the baby out with the bathwater, but I think we need to throw the baby out with the bathwater here because <laughs> um, we needed to really turn things around and change the perception of the brand. It, it's always had its loyalists, it always will, and it's, it, it's a wonderful, wonderful brand. Um, we weren't young at all. Um, they, they had actually given up on trying to get after sort of the high school piece and cross country and track and field. And, um, and we almost had to get permission from the CEO to make a run at it again and ended up quite successful and really changed a bit of the dynamics of who wore that brand you know, at the time. Um, yeah, so there were a few other sort of marketing tactical things that happened there. And it, it, for me was, it was an incredible shift. Um, I always tell the story how my first month or week or something, I was pulled into a buy meeting and I didn't start on my calendar. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know what a buy meeting was. And suddenly I was in the hot seat deciding how many pairs of shoes we were buying from the factory to put in the warehouse and to ship, you know, to customers. And, and at Nike, there were elves or something did that, you know, we, we were, uh, it was, you know, there was, there was levels of uh, detail that, um, that I had not been exposed to. And so it was definitely um, learning by a fire hose for a while there. And, uh, but incredible, incredible experience for me. I learned more during that transition time um, than I probably ever have. And, um, and it was, it was fun. 
company went through two merges while I was there and merges are never that fun. Um, people have thrived through it and done great. I just felt, um, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a, um, as fun and independent as it was those first sort of two and a half years I was there when we got purchased by, by the stride right group and then by the pay less group. And then since I left, it's gone through another one. Um, so I, I went there to be entrepreneurial, to get out of bureaucracy and too many meetings and things that come with big companies. And suddenly it was sort of happening again. Um, so, um, yeah. And, um, so it was a good, it was a good, a good five years. And, um, I remember well, being, I remember begging you to buy shoes from us when I first got there. So that, that, that's how we got to know each other. It was when you yeah. were kind of the underdog and yet it was fun to see what did change, not just in terms of the product, but also the perception of the brand. And I know perhaps to this day to your chagrin a little bit, and we're going to talk about new balance next, but even now, Saucony is a top one or two brand for us as it comes to the racing element to the track and field and cross country spike business. So that desire that you took into that business and that intent you had to drive that younger consumer into the brand certainly worked. And you've got some legacy there for sure, my friend, because we continue to see it to this day. And I know it's a hallmark from when you were at Saucony and you were involved with that team and the product. Well, for those of you who have thought, man, I'm getting more regardless of what industry I'm in, stay tuned for this next question. Because yes, at Nike, he mentioned the importance of team. You can be a Fortune 10 organization or company, you still need to work as a team. At Saucony, the idea of throwing it all out and starting over, that does make sense on occasion, perhaps for all of us. Now let's talk a little bit about New Balance, Tom. Truly entrepreneurial, still privately held. I'm going to mention something that's a distinction you're very well aware of, but what drew you to New Balance? What was it after now 20 plus years of experience that takes you to a brand that there are no shareholder meetings? Yeah. So I mean, first growing up in Boston, in the Boston area and being um, someone that had been in the running industry quite a while, like you said, New Balance was almost a dream for me. Um, it's a brand that I think all of us always had incredible amount of respect for anyone that knew the Jim and Ann Davis story had respect for what, what they've done and how they've done it so differently than the rest of the industry. Um, but also I think many of us looking at it thought, wow, wouldn't it be fun to try to um, try to bring, bring some of the experiences in my case, experiences I've had in the past and see how much of that I can I can bring as a change agent to a company that is pretty big um, and at times can be pretty, pretty conservative in how things were done. And early on, um, so when I had an opportunity to do the role as the general manager of running for New Balance, I, I was absolutely thrilled. Um, it was, you know, in my opinion, the coolest business card I ever had and the opportunity and the upside was so clear from day one. Um, I think when I say tapping into past experiences, what was so cool and is so cool still about New Balance is that there were people at New Balance that were absolutely fantastic that I still work with today that just bring, you know, bring energy and bring perspective that we need. Some of those people, particularly in design, just needed to be unleashed a little bit. They needed to be allowed to take some more chances with things um, and have a little bit more clarity on what the runner wants at the end of the day. Um, no disrespect to any retailer in the world, but 
a lot of times brands build themselves on what is the buyer asking for at this account or that account. And that's an important perspective, but it's not nearly as important as what does that runner really want? And where are they going next? And we worked really hard to make sure that perspective was embedded in how we went about everything at New Balance. Um, New Balance, um, as, a, as a team, has always been very rich, very loyal. All the things that you hear about New Balance, I learned quickly, are abso- absolutely factual. Um, it, none of the corporate um, ladder climbing and none of the, the, the egos and backstabbing and things that I had, frankly, experienced at other places, um, none of it exists um, at New Balance, not when I joined and, and not today. But what we did need to do was bring in energy and bring in um, new perspectives and bring people into it that were going to challenge the status quo. Um, and that, for me, was probably one of the more fun things that I've been part of. We, we built a team from design to development to product management. And that, and as I know you know from, from the stores, there's nothing more thrilling than bringing in young people, seeing them learn, seeing them make mistakes, seeing them fix mistakes, and then seeing their careers just move along. Um, it, you know, as, a, as I get older, that's one of the more satisfying things to see. And the team that we've built internally and externally, not just in North America, but around the world, it's the best team I've ever been part of. Um, you know, the team dedicated to your channel in North America with Kevin Adams and Keith Kelly and the development of the Trackster program that we put in back in 2009, I believe, um, watching those Tracksters go from mostly working in run shops around the country, getting this field experience and then coming in as product line managers, as merchandisers, our entire office, both in Lawrence and Brighton, is just filled with former Tracksters, which is, a, which is a, again, a real thrill to, to have been part of that. Um, you know, a, along the way, we knew that we needed to do some big things to shake up internally and externally. Probably one of those things that was as big as any was the athlete program um, that for many years had been dormant. And when we started to get the product right, we said we need some athletes to challenge us, to promote for us, um, and to really be part of the family. And the first high-profile athlete that we went after was Jenny Simpson, who at the time was coveted by all major brands in running. Um, and so we had to we had to put together a, a presentation and an experience for her that made her feel like she was part of something that's been around a long, long time that had wonderful values, but also part of something that was new and exciting and almost a pioneering kind of role within it. And um, for that period of time, Jenny not only helped us by by winning medals around the world and inspiring kids in New York City with with the Fifth Avenue Mile. But also it's just slowly but surely uh, we became synonymous with, you know, middle distance female runners around the world who were attracted to our brand, wanted to be part of who who we are. And it's changed our dynamics. It's changed um, how we look at product, physically look at it, as cosmetically look at it. It's changed our apparel lineup because the squeaky wheel of a 23 year old woman who wants to be the best in the world and wants to look great on the track, off the track, is a fantastic um, energy point for um, for a brand like us. So I look at that period of time, um, we brought in some great people from the competition, people from right out of school. And again, people that have been with New Balance um, made sure they had the runway to really succeed as well. So it's been a great mix of new and old. 
That's awesome. Well, I remember prior to you being at New Balance, the first time Jim Davis came to see us, he lands at PDK at the private airport not far from our Brookhaven store. And we saw two stores with him that day and had lunch in between the visit of those two stores. And it was the 860 at the time. And he said, this is the best 860 we've ever had. And you're not selling it. It's I've seen the sales report. You're hardly selling it. It's the best 860 we've ever had. And we had this honest conversation that Jim being the best 860, if that's what you're comparing it to is only the other versions of 860, that might be the challenge. We've got to ultimately have it go out against competitors from other brands and be the best in that segment in which it competes. And he understood it immediately before we knew it. Tom Carlio was coming to New Balance. And the next time Jim Davis was in one of our stores, I remember having the conversation with him. I'm like, guess what? I don't know if I should tell you you were right. Or if we should say together, maybe even as a celebration, we were both right because the 860 is one of the best shoes that we carry at this point. And what we didn't say, but we'll say now, Tom Carlio had something to do with that change that took place in the 10 years that separated Jim Davis's visit. Let me ask you this. Speaking of Mr. Davis, he, 50 years ago, this Boston Marathon made the purchase of New Balance. It was at the Boston Marathon in 1972, I believe. He elected to take on that as his bold entrepreneurial journey. And now here we are coming up on Boston Marathon in 2022. What kind of celebration is that going to be like? Yeah, we've got an incredible celebration because it's also the grand opening um, of the track at New Balance, which is, um, if you haven't been exposed to it yet, please go on to Instagram and, um, and check it out. But it is the premier indoor track and field facility on the planet. Um, I've been lucky enough to sort of be on the peripheral part of the planning with this and been able to sneak in there quite a bit during construction. Awesome. Um, and it is, uh, it is the premier indoor track and field facility in the world. Um, in 2024, we'll host the indoor NCAAs, but we'll also be moving our Grand Prix meet there and high school nationals will be there. It sits, uh, I believe, 4,500 people in the track and field area. It's also multi-purpose so that the bank track can flatten hydraulically and field turf can roll out over it for indoor soccer, indoor lacrosse. Um, it's going to have um, one of the largest sports research centers anywhere um, in the building. So we're going to have our team New Balance run by Mark Coogan. That will actually be their home base and their locker room um, for all of their training. And then adjacent to it in the same structure, um, there's a music venue that is, um, is going to have its debut concert. I believe in about one month, it will be the first concert. It sits about 4,000 people. Um, and it's the Bowery group who I believe has a facility down your way. Um, so it's tons of energy. It's in the New Balance sort of center where we have the Boston Celtics across the street and the Boston Bruins next to them. Restaurants, bars, um, hamburger joints, pizza joints, all of it in this one area. So it's, it's, it's going to be an absolutely thrilling environment to celebrate, you know, Jim's purchase of the company. And um, we're going to be um, really doing quite a bit of activity from the Wednesday prior to Boston, all the way through that weekend, it's going to be packed with activity. That's awesome. And a yeah. very true indication that hard work is still the best investment. All right, Tom, I told you, in addition to the journey that we've taken, we're also going to look for a little bit of a unicorn, perhaps, and what I referred to it earlier as, as the hunt. So I've brought one of my favorite shoes of all time. 
here. And we're not going to talk about this shoe specifically, but we are going to kind of deconstruct shoes. And just to get your obviously very deep knowledge about different parts of the shoe and where you see things going to help construct the perfect shoe. Let's start in the most obvious place, the midsole for those who are not aware or perhaps even able to see the screen because you're listening to us on your podcast. The midsole is where so much of the cushioning technology is. This is where we hear about things like absorb or gel bags, or perhaps if we go way back to airbags or waffle midsoles, what are midsoles? going to do for us in the future, Tom? What are the materials that are going to be used and how will they be different than what we maybe are experiencing today? Yeah, I mean, there's been more innovation with the foams themselves in the last three-ish years um, than probably in 20 years prior um, added up. And I think it's because of a, of a couple of things. I mean, one, um, and, and I'd like to think that we were on the, the front end of this, but midsoles the conventional way of looking at midsoles is looking at strike patterns and then saying, okay, I need a material here for the highest energy point. I need something a little bit rigid um, in midfoot to control torsional rigidity. And then I need something softer and bouncier up at the met heads and forefoot, just, just as an example. Mm-hmm. And I think what we learned with fresh foam is that you could serve those different strike points in those different energy points on the footpath with with a singular material if they're if they are tuned correctly if the midsole is of the of the right durometer um and you can simplify the heck out of out of a midsole and serve the foot the way it needs to be served for for long long runs in the process of learning about how we could get simpler with midsoles it also forced us though to start looking at what else these foams can do for us foams today range obviously from the the super bouncy you know, autoclave foams that, that we're seeing in our in our fuel cell elite type product and the competitors all have their version of it um, all the way to the big cushion shoes that we have like the more or some of our competitors in that space. Mm-hmm. It's forcing us all to get our chemists and our third party partners to really work on one, how can compression be a good thing where in the past with the foams, we all knew that if the foam was too uh, squishy, you're going to overextend the Achilles or the plantar fascia, and you're going to have some issues because there was no return. So that it was bottoming out. And if you think about what that's doing to your Achilles on every step, it's it's clear why you're going to have some potential um, sort of hot spots in those areas. Um, you also had foams that were squirrely. So on high speed film, as you saw the compression, you saw them shifting medial and laterally as it pressed downward based on the geometries of the midsole. And this is where back in the day, knee injuries became so popular and different issues with hips became so popular because of that, that micro shifting that you'd see kind of as, as you went through the, the force of, of running. Um, so the vendors and our partners, everybody is working on foams that are going to give you that resilience that you need so you're not bottoming out. And then the geometries and what we're learning from the structures, the bottom nets of the shoes, where you carve away, where you don't carve away so that you're running very, very neutral. I think about today, a neutral shoe today runs as straighter, in some cases, even straighter than our stability shoes did a decade mm. ago. Um, and it's simply because that that inherent um, in- stability that we're building into, into the, um, the platform itself. So where foams are going to go, I know that we all want to push towards... Um, towards lighter shoes. You know, how can we get the same level of cushioning scores and something with the weight of a weight of a, you know, a racing flat from our, from, from the old days. Um, I believe we will get there. 
we're seeing some of our competitors are doing a wonderful job there. And we have some great, great product in that, in that zone as well. So I think weight's going to continue to be one. Um, I do think that part of that weight is going to be where can we remove stuff? You, you know, we all shoemakers love the, the uh, ground contact materials. But as you know, in the store, what you do run into is, is premature wear. Or you run into some slippery spots sometimes. So how can we get to the point we can simplify outsole, midsole into one component without those concerns of traction or durability is something that I'm sure we're, you know, we're not the only ones, you know, working towards this. And then I guess the, the big one that is the most talked about is just how can the foam and the setup of the midsole make you faster? And that's really not something we were, we were talking about back in the day. And obviously a key competitor kind of opened this Pandora's box and we're all there and we have to serve our athletes and we have to serve those runners that want to go from 310 to 304 in a marathon. We, we have to make sure that we're working with these setups that are going to actually allow them to run faster. Um, and I, I've been uh, inspired by that work because it's also puts you in a position of saying, how can we get runners to train more healthy? Because it's a very similar equation if you think about it. You know, that last 10% of a 42-kilometer race, you're, um, you're healthier. Your body is, is healthier in these super shoes today than, than it was when you were beating it up for that first 30K of a marathon. Um, so what can we learn from that? And we have, we have a training shoe coming out that's built of the, in that ilk. So you can go hammer your, your 10 mile tempo run. Um, and you're going to feel better immediately and you're going to feel better the next day. Um, you know, based on what, what we're learning here. So, um, yeah, so midsoles are what it's all about. Um, and, um, and who knows what it's going to be like in 10 years, but I can tell you the next five years is going to be really exciting. That's awesome. Obviously, less weight, less injuries, equal to better cushioning scores. That is certainly part of what we would say is the perfect running shoe. Maybe we should have started with the upper since you just said it's all in the midsole. To some degree, we know that's where the action is. But the uppers have changed significantly as well. And you talked about taking things out. This is the part of the shoe that visibly it seems like the most has come out over the last 10 years. Now, as we go to different materials, as we go to different weaves and not those synthetic overlays, what about the upper? What do you see on the top part of the foot being the case as we lean into the future? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I do think you're going to continue to see um, a less is more mentality with uppers. Where does the foot need to be secured and locked down? Where does the, where does the, um, the, where is the foot flexing at its most intense level um, at identifying those pieces. And now we can fabricate things either through engineering of a mesh or obviously through knitting processes, you know, to be able to zonally design an upper. So where you need that most breathability and that most movement and flexibility, you can get that. But that same, that same um, um, pattern that we're looking at is a singular piece that's bringing you some rigidity and some tension where you need it perhaps medially midfoot or obviously back in the counter area. So, um, you know, the shoe you're referencing there, you know, we really tried to eliminate the internal counter and try to get that um, on that, I believe the V10, 1080 to really get that heel locked down, but do it in a really, really soft and, and supple way versus a piece of plastic kind of wrapping around the heel as aggressively as we traditionally have done. So it's still work to be done there, but it's been, um, it's been a, um, a really fun project. Watching designers be able to bring to life really exciting, really vibrant uppers 
with very little to work with relative to the past. We were stitching here and stitching there and putting a big reflective patch there. You know, I look back at the shoes and think, man, what were we thinking with all those pieces? But, um, <laughs> but, but, um, yeah, so, so I think the simplicity piece will, will stick around, um, you know, and, and, um, I know, you know, as we talk more about the process and about sourcing and all that, I think, um, simplicity is, is also a friend in how you manufacture shoes, um, efficiently and as environmentally consciously as sustainably as, as you can. And of course, the upper is a big, a big part of that. And we're going to talk a little bit about maybe that as it relates to the future here in a second. I'm going to lump everything else. And I know it's not really everything else. But if we think about the lacing, if we think about the tongue, if we think about the, the sock liner that's inside the shoe, if we think about the heel collar, if we think about all these other elements that matter, is there anything that you would say, hey, be on the lookout for this, or here's where I think a really cool opportunity lies in the not too distant future for a, an improvement that most people would find to be pretty appealing? You know, I think it depends on sort of the category and the biomechanical silo, but I, I do think you're, you're, you know, we definitely are working on some more asymmetrical designs and more um, really, really a slave to kind of foot morphology and looking at kind of how the medial side takes, um, takes energy versus the lateral side. So I do think you're going to continue to see um, more of that kind of organic design to uppers. Um, you know, we, we've, um, we've, we've internally just talked a lot about just foam in general within the shoes, whether it's the tongue or the collar, you know, how can we get to a point where that foam can be diminished or eliminated and still have the, the protection you need either from the abrasion in the heel or lace pressure on the top. Um, and it's, it's a, it's a, it's, um, you know, a fun project to think about because, um, it's not, you, you have to think about that across a lot of different types of feet, a lot of different types of runners. Um, you have to think about climate, you know, um, humidity versus dry is so different. What's going on with the foot when you're running, but, uh, but it's a cool, it's a cool challenge and it's something that, um, you know, just eliminating extra stuff, I think is going to continue to, to drive us. Well, and for those who have not been around the industry before, maybe not thought about it as deeply, yes, there are teams of people who are thinking about things like lace pressure in dry conditions right now and thinking about how to make it better in the future. Before we dive into the future really quickly, Tom, just as a maybe an anecdote, how far into the future are you looking right now? You're looking and working on collections. How far out? We're taping this first quarter, 2022 how far into the future are you already truly thinking about product? Yeah. So I mean, thinking about from an innovation agenda perspective, you know, we're fairly, um, you know, we're, 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 we're not, not done with the product. But we're fairly done with the thinking of, of 2024. So, you know, we know what the line plan is going to look like in the general direction. And we even have some bodies of work kind of coming back. And so the innovation agenda that we're working on right now is more 24 second half all the way through 25. Um, and that's a combination of, um, you know, our innovation groups working on some new compounds that need long-term testing, um, some manufacturing things that um, sometimes the challenge with great concepts is can you actually build them? Will they bond well? Will they hold up well in transit? All these other things. So, um but really, you know, in terms of physical work, it's it's through 24 right now. 
Very cool. And that still fascinates me. I remember the first time I heard that many, many, many years ago now. And to this day, it still fascinates me to know that 2023 is largely over for you. But now let's look at some things that are, are, are truly headlines for those of us in this industry right now. And I say that even for all of us as consumers and obviously enthusiasts for run, walk, what we call a pedestrian active lifestyle, you leaned first into the environmental considerations. What do you see as the environmental friendliness or maybe even responsibility that manufacturers and even retailers have to do some things differently in the future than what we've done in the past? Where are the hallmark, uh, maybe signature uh, decisions going to be made or what's going to be radically different? Yeah, I mean, the, the, um, the positive side right now about the sustainability efforts is it's truly like an all hands on deck approach, meaning with the vendors that we meet with, no matter where they're from in the world, whether they're material, upper material companies, uh, mesh suppliers, foam suppliers, or whether they're the midsole or outsole components, everyone that you meet with today is wired on doing things more environmentally consciously. And that's everything from how it's produced with what's being emitted to how these factories are run from a, from their own, you know, emission perspective. Um, and, um, and there's choices to be made that traditionally were very difficult from a cost perspective and from a, um, a cost perspective and also from a, um, um, availability perspective to have enough of them. If you have a million pair program and it's a niche company making some kind of cool environmentally preferred material, um, it was it was difficult to get. So the, the, mm-hmm. the, the glass half full right now is it's it's every country that we do business with in any form. This is a heightened, heightened reality. Um, I know brands are all in this together, which I think is an, is important as well. We we have a program called Greenleaf internally, and it's uh, both apparel and footwear. It's got a fairly high standard for our design and engineering and product managers, frankly, to get that green leaf stamp on the product means you have to be choosing environmentally preferred materials um, that have been proven and tested. And um, at a high percentage of that, we're gonna be putting this green leaf standard on the product. And that's everything from insoles to some really cool things that are coming with actual EVA foams and midsoles that are um, a, a much better material in how it's produced than um, what's been used for historically since, since I've done this. So some big step forward. Um, at the end of the day, the other things that you know that we need to somehow control that I think have been difficult to control have been packaging, um, you know. And I think that's where, when I say all hands on deck, it'd be pretty amazing vision to think if we could work with, with um, the the channel that you're within and figure out a way to reduce dramatically or even eliminate the level of packaging that we do have today. That itself is something that I think. It just needs to be shared by everybody along this 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 sort of external supply chain that we're, you know, that we're living in, um, because it's a lot easier to get a big box with perfectly squared shoes in it and um, stack them in the back. But some innovative person's going to come up with a better way to do it, so we're not constantly um, throwing plastic and cardboard away. Um, yeah, so so the green leaf thing is something we're really proud of. We've dedicated teams to it. Um, and it's super important all the way up within New Balance. And it's not just within the running group. It's, it's universally across the company. Um, the new facility I just mentioned is getting the highest environmentally preferred, you know, architectural and um, it's HVAC and everything. It's the highest level a building can be um, 
to sustain the level of activity that's going to be in there. So they're, um, it's a, um, it's not just an important thing. It's a critical piece to, to all of our futures and, and we're taking it on the best we can. Wow. Very cool. A couple of things that you mentioned are perfect for other places. I'd love to get some commentary from you. First of all, you mentioned cost. When you think of cost, obviously it's a production at the same time, you know, all of those who you want to try on, perhaps purchase New Balance, are thinking about costs as that suggested retail price. This year, the work that we've done, the research Big Peach has done, is that we're going to see about a 3.9% increase on the footwear models that are released, whether as new models or updates to current models throughout the course of this year. For maybe the first time that I can remember, the cost increase is less than what is reported as consumer pricing or as just simple inflation. And I think anybody who's been to the pump recently or perhaps been canvassing the aisles of their local grocery store would say, wow, 3.9%, not perfect, not what I'd like. In fact, I'd love a 0.0 or even something that has a negative in front of it. But compared to what I'm paying when I fill up or when I put a bunch of groceries in my buggy, that's not too bad. What do you see in pricing whether it's over the next six to 12 months or quite frankly, over the next two to five years. Yeah. I mean, the two to five years is so, so tough because so, so much of this as we've obviously experienced through the pandemic is it's as macroeconomic as one can get, right? Things that are just absolutely out of the hands of any, any individual or any team. Um, that's everything from just scarcity, um, which drives price up, whether that's scarcity of containers or trucks within manufacturing countries to get to the the to get to the ports, um, and then just just getting on to those those um, those freight um, carriers is just is more competitive than it's ever been. It's all loosening a bit right now. You add oil to it, obviously, it's at an incredibly high um, north of a hundred dollars a barrel, I believe, today, and um, that that affects everything that you do, everything I just mentioned, but also the manufacturing piece of it and all. So, so it's, it's probably one of the more challenging times to, to um, easily answer that question other than it's implausible that they're going to start gradually moving downward um, because the other consistent piece, which is something that is a, a good part of society, but that is that wages and conditions within countries that make footwear um, will also continue to go up. And um, as that happens, that all gets passed on, you know, down the, down the, um, down the line. So it's really difficult to say what, what is going to happen. Um, the, the turmoil in the world, whether that turmoil is, you know, economic turmoil with the USA and China, or whether it's what's going on, obviously in Ukraine now, all affects everything that we do ultimately um, here. So, um, when I mentioned before the simplicity piece of footwear, um, I personally am a big believer in simplicity. I like it aesthetically in my, you know, um, in in design in general. But it also affects both those things that you know that we're talking about. The less pieces that are falling onto a uh, a shop floor because you're cutting out so many pieces of an upper, or the the less thought that went into how you're building your molds and how you're um, assembling your outsoles to the midsole, all of it's leaving stuff on the shop floor that gets thrown into, into bins of some sort. Um, and even if those bins are being reused or recycled or, or whatever, it's still creating, um, you know, energy that it's, that could be unnecessary. So the less of that we can do as an industry, 
the less of that that can be done in all products, um, you know, the better we will be controlling those costs because everything I just described um, in this industry, it's still very hands-on. So there's a person there that is that is cutting those pieces. So the less of that cutting, um, you know, the more you can control the, the time it takes to make a shoe and ultimately the, the, the cost associated with it. So um, simplicity, I think, is going to continue to be our friend and simplicity with environmentally preferred materials um, is even better. So um, I, I think um, those things will and can help mitigate costs ultimately as well. Awesome. Well, I, I, I think this is a true statement, but keep me honest here that you have been working on product for 2023, for 2024. You even leaned a little bit into 2025, but the decision as to what those products would have as their suggested retail, you may have ideas or targets even, but it truly is unknown right now. It, it, it is somewhat unknown. I mean, I, I think that, um, you know, we work in an industry that generally operates at $5 increments. And so I think we feel comfortable that within that $5 um, increment will be there. Meaning if we briefed it at 140 and it needs to be at 145, I don't think you'll see something that was briefed at 140 need to go to 160. Okay. Um, but I do think those increments that we um, have always experienced somewhat. Um, and it's also reading the marketplace. Um, you know, it's, it's I, I, I don't know how long it's going to last, but I, I, we have a, a running shop just a walk from my house. And I, I spend, um, I try to spend a couple of days a month in there on Fridays and spend two or three hours and just talk to people. And um, I know the staff very well. And one of my sons worked in there. So it's kind of a little, little oasis for me, but I, I'm amazed how people don't seem phased by price at all as they're looking at product. And that used to be a much bigger conversation. And I think maybe just as choices in life, today buying a good pair of running shoes and a nice jacket um is is a bargain relative to other things in terms of what it's doing for you you physically and mentally when you're out walking or running so um i think we're in a great industry and the timing for us to contribute really positively to the world beyond just the running geeks that we used to serve um we need to serve the heck out of them but also look at that community that's so much broader than that and keep them healthy and happy and um um, and if a few good things came out of this terrible pandemic, one, one of them is that the world seems to be moving and, um, and people are recognizing it as a, both a mental and physical, um, therapy session. So, man, I was going to ask for the landing. You just nailed it. That is good stuff that it is not just for the running geeks that we are serving so many. And truly it is, Tom, you're right. I would even label it, even with a 3.9% anticipated price increase, the deal of the century, if you think about what you get from it physically, mentally, emotionally, and perhaps even relationally, if you're doing it with friends and others, family members, those you work with, I don't know that there's a better deal out there. All right, last question for you. You've done so much. Like I said, you're going on 35 years in this industry. What is that thing you still want to do? Whether it's your personal bucket list or whether it is that kind of holy grail of footwear design development that has not yet come to be something that you can put on your office shelf. What is it that you still want to do? Oh man, you didn't, you, you didn't prepare me at all for this one, man. Have I ever prepared you for anything? This is no, pretty, pretty no. standard for me. No, you know, um, you may recall one of my personal passions in running footwear is, is actually on the trail side. And 
I, um, I, I think I would love to get to a point where, where we've done something so good in trail that every runner would have a trail shoe and a road shoe. Mm. And I know that sounds very simple, but if you think of it, most serious runners um, are fine wearing their, wearing their 880 on the trails. My, I two sons that ran collegiately and a third going to run collegiately next year. And they run in trails at their university and they run in trails in New Hampshire and they just do it. And I got 600 pairs of trail shoes in the house. They won't, they'll never see them wear them except when they're going out to the brew pub at night, um, <laughs> you know, with like a pair of jeans or something. So, so we've made some great trail shoes. The competitions made some great trail shoes. The outdoor industries made them, but I don't think, They've ever been a, a, a other than people that are out doing sixty mile, hundred mile races off road. Um, I don't think anyone's ever nailed it to the point where it, it's a must have item in your running collection. And um, that's just one that comes to mind because I've worked on so many of them, and and I get picked on uh, by my former colleagues in Oregon because I was so passionate about a few trail shoes out there that that um, that never made it. So. Um, but I, um, yeah, so that's one. I, I, I think the opportunity off-road is massive, um, absolutely massive in footwear and apparel. And I think it's only going to get bigger when you see the statistics around the world of people that are getting outdoors, people going to their own national parks, um, people get just getting away from, from noise, I, I think is, is going to sustain and um, figuring out a way to really, really um, offer them something that's going to make that experience even better would be would be awesome man that would be you are definitely scratching an itch of ours i hope that you are right that if that is what you do as you kind of go forward we are with you every step of the way d2 and i could not be more enthusiastic about that answer for those who have not tried the hero do that that is some of tom and his team's good work that's what i'm currently running the trails in north georgia in and it is a must-have alongside the 1080 tom you obviously are a friend of ours you are a superhero for this industry and certainly it has been an extremely good pleasure and fortune of mine to get to know you over the last decade and a half thank you for all that you've done and thanks again for joining us here this evening thank you thanks mike thanks dave appreciate it sure you bet enjoy, we're gonna wrap this that, thing up do not oh man we will we're gonna wrap this up and before we do we're gonna ask d2 a question that we always like to get his perspective on he is obviously taking notes, making sure we get this edited just perfectly. D2, there was so much that Tom commented on that, quite frankly, just from an organizational development or optimization standpoint, was really good, I think, for me, perhaps for us to hear. What are some of the things that Tom mentioned that you think have application, even if you're never at a running brand or organization, or you're never in a footwear development role, what is it that you heard that you would say, man, I might be the director of marketing. I might be a CEO somewhere. I might be, you know, that podcast host, but this is just great advice. Um, well, I mean, I think what I, what I got out of it was, you know, I mean, he just seems, Tom just seems like he just has the best job. You know, I thought I had the best job, but he seems like he has a really, a, a lot of fun um, and it's one of those things that I just, I, you know, I, you can feel it as energy. And, uh, I think that's just awesome. Um, and just to innovate, to try things that are new to experiment. I think those are all things that I think we could take that into whatever we do. Right. I mean, yep. Well, for those of you who want more of that, please check out 
what D2 has recently done. He has served as the host. He was recently with Robert Wilhite. He is my cycle coach. Check D2 and Robert out. And then, of course, all of the episodes that precede this one, they are yours for the taking. But for the time being, we're going to bid you adieu. But for only a month again, the last Wednesday of each month, we will do the video cast every two weeks. D2 will ensure, ensure that you get your podcast. But for the time being, we must say good night. And as we always say, as we certainly mean, this is for sure your best miles are just ahead. Good evening, everyone. Hey, y'all, if you enjoy our podcast, let us know. If you have topic suggestions, questions, or guests you'd like to hear on the Big Peach Ride and Run podcast, email us at podcast at bigpeachrunningco.com. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube.